Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the gift of rest. We thank you that you are constant, that you never change, that we can trust you. We pray that this morning as we go through this next section in Acts, that you would once again display the beauty of Christ and the, the mission that you have for your church to make him known. We pray that we become more aware of that, more um, zealous to live that out as a congregation, as a, a group here at Sylvania, individually, that we would be bold in our proclamation that Christ has come, that he has lived, died, he was buried, and that he was raised, and he stands in heaven, and he sits on the throne that is his, and that we are um, members of his kingdom and are calling all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel, to kiss the king now while there is still time. We pray that we have that urgency in our hearts toward that. Thank you for the testimony that we have of men in the early church, the apostles and others who were driven to make Christ known in their time. We want to imitate them as they imitate Christ. And so we pray a little bit more that happens this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Acts, Acts 9, um, starting in verse 32. Where did, we, where did we end last time? Do you remember what, what was going on? Who, who was the focus on in Acts? Where did Luke? Saul of Tarsus. And where did he, where did that wind up? How did that res- how did that result? Well, he was in Damascus. He went back to Jerusalem, and then from there, he went after. He was rushed off to Tarsus because the Jews in Jerusalem were wanting to kill him. Because that's the rational thing to do whenever you can't refute an argument is to kill the messenger. So he's in Tarsus, and and we talked last week about the next ten years that he's there are called Saul's or Paul's uh, silent years. Um, the, the narrative then moves from Saul and Tarsus to Peter. And where do we last see Peter in Acts? Where was he? The last time he was specifically mentioned. Do you remember? What was going on last time we saw Peter? Was he the one with the eunuch? Or was that? No. That was Philip. Was Philip but close. Was he preaching? He was preaching where? In the temple? Jerusalem. Temple. No. Let me just say it. <laughs> no, no, we'll, we'll get it eventually. We'll just go ahead and... He showed up in Kenya. No, it was... Um, he was with Philip. Remember? In, uh, in some area, and he dealt with Simon the magician, and then they left that area, and it says they went back to Jerusalem. So he was, oh, and they preached along the way, as he, he, you know, through, those, through that uh, northern area. So they, the, that's the last time it's been focused on Peter. Um, but Luke shifts the narrative back to Peter, uh, and we see him participating in the wider 
Judean mission along these coastal towns we'll read about today. Ultimately, we're going to see him involved in the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10. What is interesting to me about these next two narratives is how God moves him incrementally to that moment. And we'll see some of it uh, this morning. So let's look at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. All right, let's take them one at a time here. So Peter seems to be preaching, uh, be on a, some kind of preaching tour through, through the country. And uh, some have argued that this narrative actually happens after he's released from prison in Jerusalem because there's some kind of, I don't know, I don't understand the argument, but we know that he was with Philip. He went to Jerusalem. There was some, there, he was there for a while, but now he's in Lydda. And so the way that it works out, it's kind of vague the way the Greek is. It just says at this time or as a continuation kind of thing. But that doesn't matter. Any, anyway, I, I don't know what to make of it, actually, when people argue that. Because Luke says I'm giving an orderly account. So we're just going to kind of go with that. Um, who is he visiting here? This, this is where it gets fun. Who is he visiting? The saints. The saints. The saints, that term for believers is used four times in Acts. And two of them are used in these next two narratives. They're called the saints. And so he's, he, is, uh, he is traveling, visiting with the saints, encouraging them, preaching in the synagogues uh, is, is, the, is the custom that they would do. Lydda is about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it's located on the coastal plain of Sharon. It was the center of commerce. It had a, a purple dye um, industry there, you know. Not really cities devoted to purple dye these days, but back then that was kind of a big deal. So, um, and it was later a center of rabbinic learning. So Peter is there, and he's made aware of or, or runs into this guy who's a paralytic. Who takes the initiative here? Peter. Peter does. He does it without any recorded prompting here. And what does he instruct Aeneas to do? Make his, bed. His, his thing is, make your bed. That's the only instruction. He doesn't say, have more faith and you can walk. Right? Yeah. Why is that Aeneas is a, is a believer? Because he was going in and out among the saints? It seems to be. And it says, he's going in and out among the saints, and it says, there was. So there would be, seems to indicate that he was in, that in, that, in, the, in the Christian community. Um, so Peter takes this initiative. He tells him, make your bed. He doesn't tell him to have more faith. He says, make your bed. In fact, the make your bed in the ESV is a little ambiguous. And I'm going to admit it. It's not the best translation here. The, the, the language actually can say... Well, it's better than NIV, which says, you know, take care of your mat. I, anyway, uh, the, it could be translated, prepare your couch. Much better. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, 
if you remember when Jesus heals the paralytic, he says, roll up your mat and go or whatever, something like that. It could be the same thing here, but it could also mean prepare your couch. And if it's prepare your couch, what he's telling him is an idiom for make a meal for yourself. Because remember, they ate reclining at the couch, right? So the idea is you're already healed. Take on some sustenance. Get your strength up. That kind of thing. So he's telling him to immediately go into eating. Yes? Maybe it was a time when people were just so poor and they just didn't even have a dinner table, so they'd eat on the couch. I, I think it was more custom than, than uh, I mean, I... Like the I couch was at the table. The couch was, yeah. Uh, instead, of, instead of those hard wooden chairs that we sit in at our table, you can kind of kick back. It's why most people eat in the living room in front of the TV rather than at the table, because it's just more comfortable, right? It's, it's, and Netflix. It's much easier to have a conversation with your family when you're binging on Netflix. Okay, so it could be this take in some food. And either way, um, he, the instruction is followed by what? What does the guy do? He obeys. What? He obeys. He obeys by doing what, this paralyzed man? Immediately rose. He immediately rose. So we see here an indication of quick response in healing um, and then what you know it was supposed to be private so naturally everybody knows about it what happens <laughs> yes social media went rampant in early um, Lydda the yeah they turned to the Lord and why would they do that because, he's a, because Peter said that Jesus Christ is healed right he does it in the name of Christ the miracle actually here is very similar to one that Jesus had done before with, with paralytics, probably several that, that we can point to. And he does it in the name of Christ. Okay, let's go on. Let's look at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood uh, stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, just before we get into the, the whole the stuff in the narrative, does this remind you of anything else in biblical history? Okay, there's some of that. Earlier. Christ raised a little girl from the dead. Jairus' daughter. His father came and begged him to come. And right. He's already, she's already dead. She's already dead. Don't bother them. He's, but he went anyway. With, the widows are all weeping. Everybody's crying. They have a big old cry session. 
puts them out. And what does he say to her? Do you remember? Um, girl arise. Girl, little girl arise. Little girl, I say to you arise. Um, what else? Is there any other? Yes. Is there any other narrative that reminds you of? A couple other narratives, actually. Elijah and the widow's, Elijah and the widow's son. What happened there? Do you remember? Right? Because those things can be severe. <laughs> and she called for him, or the next time... The next time he came by. Satan uh, raised him. Didn't he have to lay on him like seven times? Yeah, he goes into an upper room. He lays on him and breathes into his mouth. Kind of a resuscitation thing, obviously, because he wasn't... Anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, sort of spiritual CPR, I guess. But he, he, he raises him. That, that's the miracle that happens there. So there's a, there's a child that dies, and, there, and there's this kind of um, event. Anyone else? There's Elijah. Yes. There's Jesus with Jairus' daughter, probably the closest parallel. There's another one that I'm thinking of. I mean, you might think of others, but... There's Elijah, and then there's, right after him came Elisha. Elisha. And do you remember the Shunammite's son? Do you remember the same thing happened with Elisha, where he had um, a woman who was supporting him, and uh, her son died. And he went to her and went in the upper room and had this same kind of Elijah-esque thing where he's breathing on the kid, and he gets up. And Why is this important? I'll tell you why it's important. Luke could have said to us, so Peter saw this guy on a mat, and he said, get up and walk, and he did, and everybody believed. And then some people from Joppa called him, and they came down, there was a dead kid, and he could, you know, he said, he, and he healed her and raised her, and city marveled, and the details he pulls out, though, are, are mirroring, I've said it right, mirroring, um, prophetic stories in the past. He's pulling out here, not only is he in sync with Jesus, as we'll see in the language that he uses, but he's also in sync with prophetic tradition of these kinds of resurrection, resuscitation, miracles that, that are in the past. Why would he do that? We'll talk about it in a little bit. I think there's a reason. So there's this, this uh, Elijah picture, there's Elisha picture, there's Jesus with Jairus' daughter. And so you have this next miracle taking place in a city called Joppa. Uh, Joppa is a, is a main port city in Judea. It's about 10 miles northwest of Lydia. So again, he's going, uh, Lydda, not Lydia, Lydda. And he's going, again, north and west. He's going further out from Jerusalem. And he's going further into Gentile-influenced country, this good Jew um, who has studied the law, lived under the law his whole life, this good Jew is going further into Gentile country. So what do we know about this woman who died? What does it say? Her name is Dorcas. Yes. Gazelle. Which means gazelle. Okay. Her name is Tabitha, right? Translated in Greek would be Dorcas. And so Luke is keeping in mind that he's got two audiences going on. One Aramaic, one Greek. Right? One Jewish speaking, one Greek speaking. So he gives both. Right. And despite our cultural 
influences on the name Dorcas. Hers is a Greek name that would be understood at the time to be a common, respectable name, meaning fast gazelle. So, not Giselle. Stop it. Um, so, I'll say that later now. I will. Okay. You're welcome. You're, you're not thanked. Okay, so you have this woman who is, uh, there's, a, there's a, a, because of the audience, her name is translated into Greek for them. He calls her a disciple. And the term in, in, in the original language is actually in feminine, which is the only time it happens in the New Testament, is disciple in feminine. And it's female disciple. So we have this indication that she's a female disciple. I don't know what that means, but apparently felt compelled to use that word here. So, um, all right, what do we know of her character? And why does he put that in there? Right. So in, in the culture, the widows are often destitute because there's no coverage, there's no way for them to do business, there's no any, any of that. And she's providing for them through making clothes. Uh, it may be unbelieving and believing widows, we don't know. It seems to be a widow ministry that she has. It says she's full of good works and charity, specifically to the widow ministry we find out. There may be other things involved there. Why is that important to know? Why would you put that in there? Okay, she's doing some, some work of the church. Okay. And I guess I'll be callous and say, so? Why is it important for him to put that in there? Let's do, things that are, let's do things that are orthodox, please. Is there something with the interplay of the next verse is she died? I don't know. Just to show that everyone... To add to... Okay, that she, even, do, even though she was doing good work, she still died? Maybe. It certainly adds to the emotional impact of her death, doesn't it? It also adds to that not just bad things happen to you for doing bad right. things. But she became ill... And died. So right. she maybe been ill for a while. She may have been. But it wasn't this idea that permeated the culture. Just like, I mean, whenever, was it the guy born blind? Well, did he mm. sin or did his parents sin? Right. That idea of you must have done something wrong if something bad happens to you. So right. It kind of underscores she didn't do anything wrong for something bad for becoming ill and dying. Yeah, I mean, this draws out that we live in a fallen world. We have mortal bodies. Stuff happens, even to Christians. Yeah? It increases the impact of her being resurrected because if she was just some person that nobody liked, nobody would really care that much. Maybe. <laughs> Dan being real. Um, so there is this investment of the, of the community into her life because of what she's done for them. So, yeah, I think there, it does get around quite a bit. Um, what it's not saying 
is that she was entitled to a resurrection because she had charity and good works. That's not what it's saying. It's pointing, he's drawing out that even though she was a, a, a very giving person, death is still with us and it's still there. What do they do with a body? What do they do with the body? They clean it and put it in the upper room. They clean it and they put it in the upper room. Now, cleaning the body is culturally customary, right? You wash the body off and kind of get it ready for burial. What, what about the upper room part of it? It seems to be a theme where they put the body in all the other stories. They have so special the, room. So the stink room. goes out. Stink rises? So you have it near the roof? Is that what we're saying? Not, not like way inside the house. That's not a cultural thing to put it in the upper room. It's, it's not. It may have been just the available space. But some have argued, and again, this is conjecture, but I thought it was an interesting argument, that they're putting it in a place, not immediately burying the body, in hopes of maybe Peter can come. Mm-hmm. Having a trust in maybe Christ will, will heal her. Through, through Peter. Because they immediately send guys out, right? You said it was like 30 miles. You think how long it would take them to send somebody to Peter and Peter to come back in that day. 30 miles. Three total. hour walk. 60 miles total. Yeah, it's a three hour walk. So about, about six, day. about a day. Yeah. So about, that's a really fast so, walk. 30 miles? A marathon takes about That's not a three hour walk. It's not? No. no. Not for 30 no. miles. 30 miles? Maybe, miles a, maybe a... Mile. It's ten miles from, but he's in Lydda. That would be ten miles. People walk. It's a ten miles. It's about ten miles. Oh, I heard thirty. Anybody want donuts? It's a ten mile walk. Are you gonna walk thirty miles? He could. You could do ten miles. Ten miles an hour. You could do ten miles in three hours. I should do ten. Okay. It's a free hours. I didn't know if it was a multi-day journey. We're debating the speed of which these guys take the message to Peter. This is a Baptist class, can you tell? Go ahead. Whether or not he gets there in a day, whether or not he gets there in a week, it kind of makes a difference. Yeah, right. Dead is dead. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not like she's going to get deader. Right? So, Except for the Princess Bride. <laughs> mostly dead? <laughs> so it's 10 miles, 10 or 11 miles from Lydda. No. Um, and so that would be about a three hour walk. That's what the smart folks say. It's a three, about a three, three and a half hour walk. Imagine walking to Winona. Yeah. Do that. So. There it is. Uh, so they send, they send messengers to get Peter. And when he arrives, what, are the, what happens when he arrives there? They say, uh, get through the Joppa. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> That's now yeah. on the end. Nailed it. Oh my God. What does the text say? <laughs> Please come to us. <laughs> and then Peter does this three-hour walk. And what do they do when he gets there? They took him to the room, and all the widows were there weeping. Okay, they're all weeping, and they're showing him clothes that she has made for them. 
possibly showing him clothes that they're currently wearing that she made for them. Um, he kicked them out of the room. And then he says, kindly depart, right? Not Benignan style, the opposite. Right. And this sort again, this adds to the emotion of the story. You see these women, testimo the testimony of, of, her, of her generosity. Um, they're crying over her. Um, so, what does, uh, so what does Peter do? He sends everyone out. Does that remind you of anyone? Christ, in the story of Jairus' daughter, sends everyone out except the parents and three disciples, the Peter, James, and John. And what does he say to this woman dead in the upper room? What does he say to her? Tabitha, arise. Okay? And what did Jesus say in Mark 5.41 to Jairus' daughter? Little girl arise, which translated is, in the text it says, Talitha Kumi. Talitha Kumi, Tabitha, and the word would be Kumi. It's the same as what Jesus did, except for one consonant, B and L. Those are, those are and so Luke is pulling off of the image of Christ being reflected here in this miracle. Again, he does it not in his own power. In the first miracle, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Obvious. And here he's using the word, not that they're magic words, but that he's imaging Christ here and as he is telling her, rise. It's the same miracle, different actors, and it's all done in the power of Christ. There's only one consonant difference here. And that similarity would not have been missed among the Aramaic-speaking churches. Peter's walking in the footsteps of Jesus where the real power rested. And both of these miracles are signs pointing to the power of Christ, who has the power even over death itself. And they validate the truth of the testimony of His resurrection. If He, in the power of Christ, is able to raise this woman, it validates again the story that Christ can raise Him in Himself. He has life, right? It's the same um, again, it's a, a, the miracles aren't for just for the sake of parlor tricks here. This is, to make, this is to display the power of Christ working in the church. And what does it say she does after he says that? What does it say she does? She opened her eyes. And again, if you needed a sign that somebody's alive, that's a good one. The next one's even better. What, is, what does she say she does? She sat up. If she's still dead and sitting up, we've got... We've got issues. She's alive. And so much so that he then does what? He helps her up and does what? Presents her. Here she is. And this giving her back to these widows is the same kind of picture that you see with Elijah giving the son back to the widow, of uh, Elisha giving the son back to the Shunammite woman, uh, Jesus giving... Uh, uh, the little girl, Jairus' daughter, back to her parents. It's the same kind of flow that Luke uh, writes for us here. So we see with the healing of Aeneas and the raising of Dorcas that news spread quickly 
and many believed in the risen Christ. All right, so that's great. That's all in the context of Judea. It's a little bit more Gentile in this area. Where, do we, where does Luke leave off Peter? Where is he? He stayed in Joppa with Simon and Peter. So he finds a guy with the same name who's a what? A tanner. What is a tanner? A leather tanner. What is that? What is involved in being a tanner? It's a really gross job. Drying hides made of what? Deer. Deer. Animals. So we have a guy dealing in uh, the product of animal carcasses. And he's living with him. He's staying there. The guy who is constantly unclean according to Levitical ceremonial law. What does that tell you about Peter? God's changing his heart. God's, God's changing his heart and dealing with how he relates to Levitical law. Because Christ has come. Right? And he's living there in a Gentile predominant area, not pious and apart in a way, but in there with them, even though it violates what he's grown up with culturally. It's not sin to be a tanner. Well, he just made himself unclean by going with a dead person. Right. Yeah, but he raised some means. Well, being around the dead body, he should have gone back to Jerusalem, presented the sacrifices to the... Yeah, you're right. You're right. But who makes him clean? Christ makes him clean. And it's the same thing with Simon the Tanner. In a very real sense, Peter has been moved by the Holy Spirit ever closer to what we'll see in chapter 10, Caesarea, which is massively Gentile, where he's about to get a really clear demonstration by Christ of the mission of the church to the Gentiles as he's involved in the conversion of Cornelius. And that's... And that's in uh, chapter 10. All right. That's just a walk through the narratives. They're fairly short. But what strikes you as you, as you read these two together? And, and I do think that they were often put together. Uh, even from the source material that Luke was using, I think they were always together because the language is very similar. What do you see in this? What strikes you about reading these two things together? As we think in context of the mission of the church being shown by Luke. So there's uh, somebody who's a believer or called a disciple who is uh, either unable to do work or is dead. And Peter comes and tells them to arise and they get up immediately and many people turn to the Lord because of them. Okay. So you have the, the, the miraculous in the ministry of the apostle here, one apostle is, is looked at. It's not like the others were just standing around in Jerusalem twiddling their thumbs. I mean, they're, they're all doing this. But he highlights Peter. What strikes me is Peter isn't doing a lot of preaching, teaching. Hmm, not in these two narratives. Yeah, he doesn't really have to. I mean, it does indicate he's kind of on a preaching tour. Mm -hmm. But what's highlighted is the miraculous. Right. Yeah. Which again validates the message. Right, it validates 
the message. I think that's the point that I see is um, they're still proving that Jesus was God mm -hmm. because he has the power to not only raise lame people but also to raise people from the dead. And none of it was done in Peter's name. It was all done in Christ's name. Right. And it's confirming not only the fact that Jesus was God, but it's also confirming the word that is written. The apostolic testimony that we that was later written down. Um, okay. Good. So it, it demonstrates again that the, the presence of Christ is still with his people, that he is faithful to um, in, in the proclamation of, of, the, of the word, the proclamation of the gospel. He's there demonstrating through his apostles that he has appointed them to be his emissaries. Um, okay, what else? You see anything else? I think it has to be really encouraging for Peter specifically, mm. who had been uh, one of the very few people in the room for the miracle that you spoke about, mm. Jesus and the little girl. Um, just how personally encouraging it is to to know the presence of God so closely that you're it's like you're reliving this moment mm. with you know Jesus as you know the Holy Spirit. Instead of Jesus in the flesh watching and right. conducting it. Um, and there were there any of the other 12 who <clears throat> performed that kind of miracle? Um, I'm not aware of any written. I, I'm assuming they are because they talk about the, the miracles worked through the apostles in the other mm -hmm. places in the New Testament. But these are the ones were given by Luke. So, yeah. So it's confirming to him... Um, the, the miraculous to that level. I mean, we've seen them heal lame people before. He and, he and John at the temple. Uh, and then again with this um, Aeneas. And then to go this far, this, this is crazy town. This lady was dead. And now she's living. And it's all because of the power of Christ working in them. Um, do you find it interesting that Luke uses the names of each of these people? Why would he name them specifically? Most narratives, the miracle narratives of the era, would say there was a guy. There was a woman. But Luke is using specific names. And towns. And towns. You could, and times. You could go talk to them. You could go talk to them. Kind of give it some validity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's historical validity. At the time this was being written, they knew these people, right? Um, there again is this mention, uh, as we said earlier, in both narratives that believers are referred to by this rare designation in Acts of saints. Both stories have the central command by Peter to rise. Um, again, it seems to indicate that these two narratives are, are closely linked. The biggest thing, the biggest picture to me, though, is the, the consistency or the image that he draws on of Peter operating in the prophetic ministry of the church. 
there's this continuity between God working in Elijah, Elisha, Christ, and now in Peter that's even more um, pronounced, again, because there's 12 of them out there doing this. The prophetic ministry of the church, um, the church built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Paul would describe in, in Ephesians. Um, you have such similarity between the stories of Elijah, Elisha, and the healing ministry of Jesus. And, and as we've seen before, the miracles done by the apostles were signs of the power of Jesus and validate the message of the resurrection as proclaimed by the apostles. As it was with Jesus, it is with the apostles. His words bring life and restoration. The church is to faithfully proclaim those words. In uh, 1 Timothy 3, 14-16, Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The prophetic ministry of the church sometimes gets um, clouded by this understanding of foretelling the future, reading someone's mail, that kind of idea. But Paul describes the prophetic ministry of the church here as what? Number one, he says the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. What does that mean? What does a pillar do? Not East Texas pillar. I'm talking about architecturally. What does a pillar do? It supports weight. Roof holds it up. Does it create the roof? Is it the roof? No, it holds up the roof. What does a buttress do? When you buttress something. It's a, it's, it again joins to the thing. If we Backs it up, supports it. Uh, some ways that we use the word buttress is to guard. It's another, another way to say that. Um, so he sees the church as being a support for, a lifting up of the truth. And he goes right into that the church does not determine the truth. That's what God does. And he shows how it works by saying, what is the truth? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And it goes into stuff that's already happened. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What is that? The truth, which is the gospel, right? And so, I don't know. The, the picture here, I think, of, of, that Luke draws from those images, he could have said it very succinctly, these two narratives, but he, he uses these. Yes, it's a history, but he's also an evangelist. And he's using it to persuade people that not only that Christ has come and he's risen, he's reigning, but he's reigning through his church and he's given them the ministry that was in one or two guys at a time before. Now it's not just Peter, because although he's an apostle, there's miracles going through him, but the testimony is validated. 
Prophecy here is not, again, foretelling the future. Prophecy here is proclamation of what God has done in Christ. And that's something given to the church. That's not just to a few guys. That's to everyone, and it's validated. The message of the apostles used are validated by their miracles, and that's given to all the church. Um, verse 16 immediately goes into a brief bullet point of the testimony of the church concerning Jesus. Notice that the focus by Paul here in verse 16 is not on social justice, although there are mercy ministry concerns, certainly. Notice that the church is not a pillar and buttress of political ideology, although the Christian worldview has a perspective on that as well. It's our reason for existing. The church exists for one reason and one reason only, and that's to proclaim and display the beauty of Christ, to make Him known. And I think the imagery that, that Luke is using here draws that out. We see it in history through the miracle, but the picture is, this is the prophetic ministry of God continuing on in the church. Yeah? That was kind of what I was thinking. Verse 42 kind of gets ran over because it's the end of the chapter and we're just ready to move on to life. But, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believe in the Lord. Like, that's the point of the story. Mm. It's not that, oh, she was raised from the dead. Isn't Jesus awesome? Well, I mean, yeah, but the point is, it's confirming all that and then people are believing because of that. That's the... Miracle. It's not the miracle in isolation. It's the why of the miracle. Yeah. Why is it there? You have a picture of someone being restored to full health, and you have another one of someone being made alive from being dead. Again, those are, I mean, think of it. Our proclamation is speaking to dead bones, <laughs> right? Ezekiel you know, is asked by God, can these dead bones live? And he rightfully says, Lord, you know. I mean, right? When we're proclaiming the message of the gospel, we're speaking to the dead. Um, as one, as, as dying men to dying men, as a dying man to dying men, it's been said, we're speaking to the dead. Rise. They can't, we don't have the power to make somebody's heart flip. We don't have that power. God has that power, but we're still to speak, like Peter's still speaking. Um, we're still to speak, Jesus Christ heals you. To fellow believers, as we call them in sanctification, as we're holding each other accountable to put aside our besetting sins, the sickness that's still in us, that we're still dealing with, Jesus Christ heals you. It's not a focus on therapies, it's not a focus on on uh, better social circumstances, it's Christ. Focus on Him, who He is, and what He's done for us that's finished. Again, that's the message of the church. That's what we need to be about. And we get so distracted with party conventions and statements on Twitter and all of that. The focus of the church is the, is the proclamation of who Jesus is and what He's done. And um, we do that based upon the testimony of the apostles of who Christ is. So, any anything else? I think sometimes we read through the miracles that happen in Acts and what Jesus did, and we say, oh, well, uh, Christ's desire is for us to have perfect bodies, healed bodies. Because that's, I mean, he's, he's healing them. And 
I think that is his desire, but that, just like you said, doesn't mean that we deserve that or that we are entitled to mm. being healed. You know how sad it is to me, having grown up in the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel stuff as a kid, how sad it is to me how at some point with many in that movement, there is this crushing realization. If you buy into that theology, I don't have enough faith to heal myself. And how devastating that is. Or the other is, there's not really a God after all because I've believed, right? What despair. Um, and yet, when we realize that what the Bible teaches is that Christ is sufficient in all things, that He's enough in all things, even if He had chosen not to heal Tabitha, He would still be enough for the widows. He would still be sufficient for Aeneas on his mat. But in His mercy, at His timing, sometimes He does heal. But we don't presume upon him for that. Um, anyway. Ultimately, these people died. Right. So, well, yeah, we can't go talk to him now. Right. So uh, I think like what we talked about earlier is the bigger picture here is Christ is glorified. Mm -hmm. People believed in him through yeah. these small pictures. Right, right. And there are many pictures that, that we point to and how God is working in our lives as well and, and things that He's done. But ultimately, the truth is what's the core issue. The, the truth of, of, of who He is and what He's done. It's our reason for existing. Make Him known accurately, boldly, and repeatedly. And if we're using the, the Senate of Dort, it's make Him known promiscuously, um, which just means to everybody. So, all right. Let's. Uh, what were those three? Boldly, accurately, boldly, and repeatedly. That's not inspired. It's just some words I use. Can it's, we rearrange it a little bit and just make it hard? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a Reformed Baptist thing to do. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us hope in the gospel and hope in. The truth that Christ has come, He's lived, He's died, He was raised, and He reigns. We need to remember that every day as we fight our own sin. We need to remember that we have a conquering king who is conquering the enemy still within us, the rebellion that remains, that we have a conquering king who is right now putting his enemies under his feet, that the world will acknowledge that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need to be confident in that. We need to have hope in that. We thank You that because of Your written Word, we do. And we can. The work of Your Spirit in our hearts through the written Word. It's objective truth outside of us. It doesn't rely on our emotions to interpret it. It just stands as written in the heavens. So would you do what only you can do in our hearts, which is to stir us up again, to make us zealous, to love Christ more, more than anything else, more than all the distractions and the fears and the anxieties that we gravitate toward with the circumstances whirling around us in life, that He is our rock.
that we cling to Him and we can be confident in His victory in us and around us. We wait for the day, hasten the day that you return, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.